So today we will survey Micah 6, verses 1 to 8. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can, you can be ready with that because we'll, we'll read a few verses there. Um, and hopefully we'll see the image of God's courtroom that frames the Lord's request in this uh, last verse 8 of, for the people of Israel to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with their God. So as we read this passage and we have this uh, request in our minds and our hearts, may we make this our commitment as we seek to follow the Lord and glorify him. So Micah 6. You know, people have an innate longing for justice. And especially when we are the ones who have been wrong and um, we expect some retribution or restitution on our behalf. We want to see uh, the wrongs made right. We want to see evildoers paying for the, um, their injustice. And we want to see the oppressed vindicated as well. And I, I, I feel that every time I see um, the news and I see all the injustices happening, especially toward those who cannot defend themselves. I see it when I, I feel it when I get uh, one of those Amber Alerts on my phone and I read about that and it just breaks my heart. Um, and I'm pretty sure that you all feel the same way. And unfortunately, un- injustice has happened ever since the fall. And it will continue to happen until Jesus Christ returns. So in the context of this passage, uh, Micah 6, um, Micah tells us a story of injustice in Israel, in Israel um, during his time. There was oppression happening from the upper classes against the underprivileged. And this was not the first time it had happened. This was an issue of severe, severe wickedness that was going um, four generations, through generations in Israel. We have seen it in Ezra and Nehemiah with, with Pastor Jeff, how the leaders of Israel would make uh, would take advantage of their position of authority to, um, to steal from them, steal from the people, to impose great taxes uh, so that the rich and powerful would, would continue to prosper, but the poor would worsen in their poverty. So let's read a few verses in Micah chapter 2 and 3 to understand what these wicked leaders were doing against their fellow Israelites. So go to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Vow to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Let's go to chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And I said, hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. It is not for you to know justice. You who hate the good and love the evil. Let that resound in your hearts. You who hate the good and love the evil. Who tear this king from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them. And break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot like flesh in a cauldron. 
Then verse 5, chapter 3. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. Then verses 9 and 11, through 11 in, verse, in chapter 3. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who, who built Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they learn on the Lord. They lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So you get the idea, right? In summary, the political and religious leaders of this of Israel were doing the complete opposite to what they were called to do. Um, they were called to know and to impart justice and to ensure peace for the Israelites. But rather, they were detesting justice. They were uh, making unethical judicial decisions that benefited them the most. They were called to lead the people in the fear and instruction of the Lord, but they were taking advantage of the people. They were using their position of authority to make a profit for themselves. They were called to proclaim the oracles of God as prophets filled with the Holy Spirit of the Lord, but rather they were ministering to the people from their own understanding. They were uh, and doing it for the wrong motivations. So God was not present in their service. So what would happen to them? What would happen, what would happen to these leaders? Even though they say that no disaster shall come upon us, but they were wrong. Two words, destruction and exile. So as we read chapters two and three and four, well, we'll read some verses in chapters two, three, and four. Um, we will see what is the result of their evil. So go to chapter two, <clears throat> verse three. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. Chapter three, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And chapter four, verse 10. Write and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So destruction and exile is the consequence of, for the, of the people for uh, their injustice and their unrighteousness. Um, God will bring an impending, impending judgment upon the nation. And as you see in chapter four, this will lead to that climatic uh, episode in Israel's history that um, was such a traumatic time for them, which was the, the siege of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar in uh, 586 BC. And it was a, a, a moment so traumatic and painful that even Jeremiah dedicated a whole book to express the lament and the sorrow and pain that they, the people suffered because of this. 
But even in that, even in that despair, God promises hope and peace. As we read in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. So there is hope. Now you may think, why was the whole nation being punished for the sin, the sins of the leaders? Um, well, as our brother Jeff would say, I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> the thing is that there's no one innocent when standing in God's courtroom. None of us is innocent. The people of Israel were also guilty of breaking God's law as their leaders were. It had been generations and generations of idolatry and injustice and rebellion that Mike is also denouncing in his message. And the people are turning against the things that the Lord had commanded them to do and breaking the covenants of faithfulness that they had vowed to obey on so many occasions. So yes, the political and religious leaders were uh, at fault, but also the people were at fault for disobeying God and not fulfilling what God had required of them. So it makes me think, how often do we see injustices happening in the world and believe that we are better than those committing such atrocious crimes? We believe that we're innocent just because we're not sinning the way that uh, they are doing. And, and sin does have degrees of iniquity and of gravity and depravity, but the sinful nature that operates in those who rob and murder, in those who steal, who kidnap and enslave children, those who commit uh, moral, uh, sinful, uh, immoral uh, com uh, sexual immoralities, and the sinful nature in all of those who do such horrendous things is the same one that is at work within us. And I know this may sound harsh, but we won't understand the magnificence and the beauty and the greatness of God's grace in his redemption until we are faced with the ugliness of our sin. So may we be as indignant and disturbed and grieved by our own sin as we are by the sins of others. So now we come to Micah chapter six, when we see God's courtroom. I'll read verses one through three. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So let's, we'll stop there for a moment. What are the people of Israel facing? They're facing God's courtroom. And Micah paints this picture um, of the Lord proclaiming this indictment against his people. And, and that word indictment is key here in this passage. Um, it's, it's in Hebrew, is the word riff. And it is often used to reference a contention between two parties that's generally in the context of a legal case. So the indictment that God is bringing is in essence a lawsuit that he's presenting to the people of Israel. So imagine the setting with me. As, uh, as we read this, as we had read these words, God is sitting on the judge's bench, surrounded by majestic mountains and hills as witnesses of the contention that God has against his people of Israel. 
And then the Lord, as the prosecutor, staying on the podium of this courtroom, and he's laying all these charges publicly against Israel, charges of injustice and idolatry and all sorts of violations against God's perfect law. But the thing is that this is not uh, an usual courtroom. I, I've never been into a courtroom before. I don't, I've never witnessed an actual legal trial in person before. But it is hard for me to think that the prosecution and the defendant can share some sort of familial relationship between them um, and also that this relationship would impact the, the charges and the, and, the, and the sentence and, the, um, and, the, the, and the verdict of the convicted party. So I say this is not an initial courtroom because in this case, the Lord is presenting his indictment, but is also reminding the people of Israel or their covenantal union with them. So see how he begins verse three. He begins and says, oh, my people. So God is not accusing some other pagan nation from their sin. Um, he is bringing a charge against the people that he has chosen and he has united to him in a fellowship um, that started um, or, or was, was forged uh, formally after the Exodus. So um, it is, it's this phrase, my people, that speaks of, of ownership, of a relationship, closeness, and compassion between God and, and his people, and the Israelites. And as parents, um, you would agree, I think you would agree with me that one of the hardest things in parenting is to discipline your kids, right? It's, it's difficult. It's difficult for me. It's difficult for Kayla. Um, but, you know, we do it in love and instruction and compassion. You, you come to your children and you embrace them. You explain why it was wrong, uh, what they did. And you explain why correction is necessary. But you also remind them of your love for them. You remind them that they are your children. And then you punish. But immediately, you comfort. You hug them. You kiss them. You make them feel not only your correction, but you also make them feel your affection. And when it is time to correct our kids, uh, Santiago, he's, he's the oldest, um, he understands a bit more. He, he comes to me with, you know, with sorrow and contrition and says, Papi, un beso. It's like, Daddy, a kiss. And um, he knows that no matter what, we love him and he is our son. And that is why we discipline. The discipline and reproof hurt, but the reminder of love and compassion and relationship comforts. So the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, 
so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. So yes, this courtroom is different because God's righteous and perfect judgment is indeed present, but it is filled with the Lord's compassion and mercy and grace and love for his people framed in his covenantal union with them, reminding them of his promises. If the Lord were to repay his people uh, according to their iniquities, there wouldn't be any courtroom in the first place. They would just be vanquished or vanished or destroyed. If the Lord had made us pay what we deserve for our sins, then none of us will be here this morning. But the Lord's indictment against Israel begins with the words, my people. And if you go to the end of that section, verse eight, finishes with the words, your God. So God will remain faithful to his promise of steadfast love and mercy and compassion. So may we never lose sight of this precious blessing that we belong to God and that he has allowed us to be close to him. So verse three, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answered me. God's present his case. He's reminding them of their covenantal union and, and, and the great act of deliverance. So as we read four and five, this says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeem you from the house of slavery and send before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Hilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So he reminds them of all these occasions when God was faithful and he came in favor of the people in spite of their unfaithfulness. God did punish sin, but he also showed his mercy and his grace, how he guided them, uh, how he freed them from slavery in Egypt, but he also forged that bond of, of covenant with them, how he guided in the wilderness uh, with people like Moses, such a great name for your kids if you are pregnant. <laughs> if it's a girl, Moisesa, I'm trying to push that, but... <laughs> It's not working, Kayla. Ethan said it's on the list. So it's way, way lower, way lower on the list. That's fine. Um, so Moses and, and uh, Miriam and Aaron, Aaron, yes, who instructed them in the way of the Lord and, uh, and to have communion with God and how he frustrated Balak's uh, intentions of cursing the nation of Israel um, and how he, uh, under Joshua's leadership at Gilgal, Gilgal, they renewed the covenant after they had broken it so terribly. So God does these things to show his righteous acts, to show that he is <clears throat> perfect in justice. But it's also full with mercy and with grace. <clears throat> Sorry. So this accusation of the people is not only charged with evidence for the religious and political leaders and their injustices of oppression to the people with the covenant fields and being uh, such wicked ministers of, of God 
Um, but he, as I said before, it also reflects God's indignation and grief against the sin of his people. And back in this courtroom with creation surrounding the scene and as witness and God sitting on the judge's bench and Israel standing accused of all these charges of the Lord's bringing to them. Now he has made his case. It is time for the defendant to respond. So we'll read verses six to eight. With what shall I come before the Lord? This is, this is Israel now talking. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for, the, for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now Micah presents uh, Israel's defense with a series of questions that when you read it at a first glance, they appear, appear to be uh, pious and sincere um, because they know the Lord. And they know that he required in his law certain rituals and sacrifices to be able to be at peace with God and to be able to stand before God's presence. Um, so they, they seem like good questions to ask, but, uh, and they do align somehow with what God has established in his word. But did they really want to stand before God? Were they truly willing to humble themselves before the Lord? I believe that the people of Israel had reached a point of resentment, perhaps, in their journey with God that made them ask these questions in a tone of complaint rather than with an attitude of humility. And we will see that as we read the other questions. You will see a progression of irreverence and malice in these questions. So they start with question number one in 7a and <clears throat> six, sorry. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? So this is, uh, this is a good question to ask because they're, they want to, in a sense, or they know, acknowledge that God needs to be honored by what his word um, expresses. And, they want to, and they, they're saying that they were willing to, to fall into that um, requirement. But it is, it is, you, when you read the other question, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? So Israel in this, in this def defendant's table in God's courtroom are saying, I'm willing to offer even more than what the, lo the law requires. They first offered thousands of rams, then 10,000 rivers of oil, then even the firstborn as an offering for their transgression. So you see the values of the offerings escalating to, point, to points of absurdity and, and irrationality and even immorality. It's, it's like saying, it's like if they were saying, God, what more do you want from me? 
You, you're not satisfied with the calves of your old? Well, I'll just give you thousands of rams. I'm just going to give you rivers and thousands of rivers of oil. I don't know where they're going to get that. I've never seen a river of oil before. Have you seen a river of oil? Never seen one of those. Um, and then I'm willing to offer my firstborn as a sacrifice for my soul. But these questions are not coming from an abundance of generosity on their part or a sense of surrendering to God and bowing before the Lord. But these questions reveal their lack of understanding <clears throat> of the heart behind God's commands. <clears throat> they did not see the sacrifice sacrifices as a way to, uh, for God to bestow of his grace and forgiveness upon the people. Um, but they saw the sacrifices as mere rituals. Sacrifices as something to be marked off and say, well, I'm done. And, and by escalating in these in this offerings, you see that they place the value of the sacrifice on the offering uh, itself. So the more that they could give, the more valuable the sacrifice would be before God. But you and I know that the value of the sacrifice is not in the offering, but it's in the heart of the one who is presenting the offering. David said in Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17, it says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So now this question, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So if, if offering 10,000 of rams and rivers of oil was not enough, uh, they say, well, what if we offer our kids as a sacrifice? This reveals even more the wickedness that was working in their hearts um, and their inclination to commit injustices. They were so uh, influenced and um, affected by the surrounding pagan nations that they were willing to sacrifice, um, child, to do child sacrifices in order to honor God. But certainly God will not be pleased with that. He would, he would not, that would not have made to, for the Israelites to be stand right before God's presence. So though Israel's defense initially appears to be commendable, and they're expressing genuine repentance and a sincere desire to be humble and honorable before the Lord, it wasn't really like that. Micah condemns Israel for, this, for their defense and any attempt to approach God through external works, to external works. Even if, it, even if these works appear to be great and magnificent and pious before the eyes of everyone, if they come from impure and wicked hearts, they're still like filthy rags before the Lord. This is what Isaiah says, chapter 64, verse six. We have all become like one who's unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. But we may have never done acts of unrighteousness like the leaders of Israel did during their time. We may have never coveted fields and seized them 
or stolen from people, their homes and possessions. We may have never tried to make money uh, by unjust and evil means. We may have never done extortion or, or practiced divination for money like they were doing. But we all have, have some capacity. We all have hated the good and loved the evil. Every time we chose, we choose disobedience or faithfulness, we are saying, this other thing in the world deserves my affection, deserves uh, my heart. But this other thing, what God's approved, what, what God has approved, not so much. We all have done our fair share of injustices and try to justify them by thinking, well, this is not as bad as what others are doing. We have all attempted to appear righteous, holy, and pious, when in reality, we're all fallen. We all have fallen short of doing what God has required of us. So back in this courtroom, the defense has rested, and now it is Micah who takes the word and reminds the Israelites, and he's reminded us that it is not by offering calves a year old. It is not by offering thousands of rams. It is not by offering 10,000s of rivers of oil. It is absolutely not by sacrificing your firstborn. But he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So see here that he's saying, he's not saying he has told you my people or he has told you, O Israel, but he has told you, O man. And in the Hebrew, this word is Adam or we get the, the, the name Adam. So, but it, it's the meaning of people, of mankind, humanity. So this command is not only for Adam Brown, He's pretty good. Um, but it's for all of us. It's for everyone in the world. For everyone in every moment of history and er under every circumstance ought to do what is good and what the Lord requires. So we'll see these three parts of do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with God. And I love how simple this is. Micah is basically saying, what is the solution to injustices in the world, do justice, right? Of course, it is easier said than done. But the issue is that now, nowadays, everyone has their own idea of what justice is or what it should be, or what kind of retributions and restitutions the people should receive. But the problem with this approach is that instead of justice serving as a means to unite people, under God's perfect standard, um, it's creating strife and division and resentment among the people. Imagine that the religious leaders, the political leaders would have believed that they were acting justly despite their iniquity. And they said, no, this is right to do. This is just. What we're doing is justice. What kind of horrible and evil deeds would have resulted if Micah had not stepped in and denounced their injustice. 
So justice should not be left to be determined by the subjectivity of society. But something as precious and foundational as justice must be grounded in the good and perfect character of God. We must look to God for justice and nowhere else. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says that the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So doing justice here means that we are fulfilling obligations in a manner that is consistent with God's moral law. It means to act and to think and to feel in a just and fair way towards others, but also seeking to help and to care for those who are oppressed and needy. Knowing that we're instruments of, God, of God's justice to bless others and not harm them. So in God's courtroom, the political and religious leaders of Israel, they were called to cease all acts of injustice. This is what Micah is saying. Stop doing injustice. But for us, he's saying, and for, but now the command is, look for and seize the opportunities to show justice, biblical, true biblical, godly justice to the people. And in a society that so much loves the evil and hates the good and is making all these straight commands that we see from God crooked. So we do justice. And not just that, but we love kindness. And in other words, loving kindness, you may have in your translations uh, or know the passage uh, as love mercy. Um, and it's, in essence, it's the same thing. It's, uh, it means to love mercy. Love kindness means to love mercy or to love steadfast love. The, the, the word is hefel, hef. Um, so if we are to be faithful representative of, of God, then we must add to our just and righteous, and, and righteous actions the appropriate heart behind our actions. So it's not just to practice justice for the sake of practicing it, but that our hearts must be inclined to do them because compassionate love and justice are the foundation of God's character. Psalm 89, verse 14, it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So in essence, we must act like God, but we must love like God as well. For us to love kindness and mercy and love um, happens when we delight in loving others in the way that God loves them. When we delight in loving other people in the way that God loves them. When showing love to someone in acts of mercy and it's not a burden, but it is a joy for us to do it. This is what our brother John says in, in, in his, epist uh, <clears throat> his first epistle, chapter four, verse seven through 11. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So dear Grace Church, let us not deprive anyone among us of our love in Christ. And whoever God is bringing to your mind right now, that person that God is bringing to your mind, that is the person whom you need to approach sooner rather than later and show that person God's love. I know what my person is. So we walk humbly with our God as well. <clears throat> in, this, in the two previous actions uh, of God's request, we see Micah addressing what should be the outward expressions of righteousness and justice. This is what you're showing people. This is what you're doing for them in righteousness and justice. And this is founded or grounded in God's perfect and, and good character. And then he also addresses the inward disposition for mercy, for love, for grace of a heart that is captivated by God's steadfast love. But now he addresses an upward reverence for God's authority in recognition of his sufficiency to help us in our spiritual walk. So walking humbly with our God means or implies that we acknowledge how holy and great and majestic and divine God is, while at the same time we're aware of how sinful and lowly and poor and needy we are. Having this perspective at all times will help us um, to keep a steady pace as we walk progressively in growing into holiness. It means offering oneself continually in loving, in, in living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Augustine said this, he said, you ask what you should offer to God as the Israelites were, were asking? Well, offer yourself, offer yourself. For what else does God want from you but your whole self? Now, the people of Israel were willing to offer extravagant and outrageous offerings, but were not willing to offer themselves. They were not being humble. They were not acting, uh, they were acting pridefully as if they had no, no one to respond. They didn't have to respond to anyone for their injustices. But having to face God's courtroom showed them that indeed God is on high and he's ready to oppose the prideful the proud, but is also ready to give grace to the humble. <clears throat> so even if the leaders of Israel uh, in Micah's time 
whose role was to impart justice and peace. Imagine that they had repented. We don't know if they did. Maybe they did. If they changed their ways and now they were doing justice and loving kindness and mercy and they were walking humbly with their God, um, it was only a matter of time till other uncompassionate and prideful leaders would come and oppress the nation again. Remember that 300 years after this, Ezra and Nehemiah are going to be dealing with the same issues of injustice. And these are similar issues of injustice that we're dealing with today. God is going to bring judgment and punishment upon every nation in the world. The U.S., Venezuela, Brazil, Nigeria, Colombia, China, New Zealand, they will all have to face the indictment of the Lord in God's courtroom for their injustices and unrighteousness. But judgment will not only come to Maduro and to all the other leaders of these nations. Judgment will be for everyone who opposes God and has rebelled against him. So what can we do? Our only hope is to look to the only one who practiced perfect justice, the only one who perfectly loved mercy, and the only one who had a perfect and humble walk walk with God, Jesus Christ. So in God's courtroom, Jesus stands as our advocate to intercede for us and to spare us from judgment if we believe and acknowledge him as our Lord and Savior. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Jesus took all of our sins and laid them upon him at the cross so that the just would die for the unjust. That the, the merciful would die for the merciless. And that the humble would die for the prideful. It was at the cross that the perfect justice and the perfect mercy met as Jesus humbled himself to die in our place for our salvation. It was not the blood of a thousand rams. It was not ten thousands of rivers of oil, whatever that may look like. It was not the blood of the sacrifice of someone who had the same sinful nature and proneness to sin as we do. But it was only by the blood of the Lamb of God. Now we can, well, now we can stand forgiven. We can stand righteous and holy and loved before the Lord. And now we can bow ourselves 
before God on high. So if you do not know, if you do not know Jesus, please come to him. Come and talk to me, to any of the elders or deacons, anyone that you can think that can help you guide, that can guide you into giving your life to him. And if you do know, and if you do know Jesus, please also know that it is only through him that we will be able to do what is good and what the Lord requires of us. Doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God is impossible without him. So come to him as well for his grace. His grace so that you can be just. His grace so that you can be merciful. His grace so that you can be humble. And to be filled with his presence so that we may glorify him and enjoy God forever. Let's pray. Father, we stand before your courtroom, Lord, knowing that we have an advocate in heaven for us, interceding for us, Lord. We confess that we, so many times, we have seen injustices in the world and be grieved by it but also have a sense of self-righteousness, Lord. That we are not committing such atrocities. But even, even in that, Lord, we have fallen from your perfection and your justice. So Father, as we have sang this morning, that your mercy is more, Lord, that your, um, that your, your, your grace, Father, is the one that can prevent us from our failings. Lord, that you have invited us to call Father as you offered your son Jesus to die for us, Lord. Help us to praise you, to come before you and to bring our broken lives, to bring our, our faults, our inadequacies, our sin, our injustices, to receive your grace and your mercy, Lord, so that we can be just people, that we can be merciful, that we can walk humbly with you. Help us to glorify you, Lord. Help us to, to come before you in love, in repentance, Lord, and adoration before your presence as we sing. We love you and we thank you. We pray all these things in your name.